Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Paul Gilbert. I'm the lead pastor. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Good news. Our new sermon booklets are now available. So if, if you got yours when you came in, why don't you put it in your hand, raise it in the hair like you don't care. Do that. There we go. Okay. Prayed your righteousness around. If you didn't get, okay, y'all can put it down now. But anyway, when you leave, grab, if you didn't get one, grab one. <clears throat> we make these available to track with the sermon so you can take sermon notes, use them in your quiet times, as well as your community groups. They have discussion questions, um, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> You'll notice that this particular booklet, this next series, seven weeks, is all contained in, the, in one chapter, John chapter 6. We're going to spend the next seven weeks leading all the way up to Thanksgiving in this one particular section of John. Now, John begins this, this section, John chapter 6, with a miracle, or what he calls a sign. And interestingly... Other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that all four gospel writers record. You know, John is in many ways interested in what's happening in the, in the southern regions of Judea near Jerusalem. And he, he captures a lot of Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders and those sorts of things. The, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They're more focused on Jesus' ministry um, in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. But this is the one, the one sign, the one miracle that all four gospel writers go to record, which makes it obviously really important, as we're going to see over these next couple of months. Now, just to kind of get us up to speed, a running start into the text, recall in John chapter 5, which we just were done with last week, that Jesus is in the middle of a, of a massive confrontation with the leaders in Jerusalem. And the more things Jesus says, the more in hot water he gets. They, they, they we leave that section noting that they want to kill Jesus. Now, this is the exact opposite reaction of what's going on in the people at large. You see, while the religious leaders in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus because of what he's saying and his claims of being God and equal with God and doing all these signs and wonders... The masses, the population at large, they love Jesus at this point. In fact, we find ourselves here at the beginning of chapter 6 with Jesus experiencing unprecedented popularity. He's at the height of his popularity in his three-and-a-half-year ministry. Yet, and this is really interesting, by the time we get to the end of this section in John 6... He goes from unprecedented popularity to unprecedented scorn. It tells us at the end of chapter 6 that people, even many of his disciples, his followers, are leaving in droves. So we know that something significant is happening in this chapter. Something that's important for us to understand about faith and enduring faith and the nature of faith. Something is set in motion by this sign and by this miracle. And we trust that through it, God will fortify our faith um, and give us a vision for who Jesus is, what he wants to do in our lives. Why don't you, I invite you to stand. We're going to read the first 15 verses here. We'll flash them on the screen for those of you who don't have a Bible, but follow along with us. We stand under the word of God. We ask that God would speak to us through it. 
Now after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to see past the sign, Lord, from a very incredibly familiar text. Lord, to see who you truly are, how you truly work, what you truly want to do in the lives and the hearts of your people. So, Lord, we're just like Philip. Unless you come and intervene with your Holy Spirit, we will be blind. We will see things in human terms. We'll see just what's in front of us, what we can see, taste, touch, puts our hands on. Lord, we need, though, your Spirit to see truth from your Word. So, Lord, bless this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Feeding of the 5,000, even if you're not religious, even if you haven't been in church since your fifth grade Sunday school class when you dealt with this miracle on the felt board, okay, you know this is miracle making 101, right? Everyone almost has heard the story of the loaves and the fishes. What we want to get at is the magnitude of what's happening in this text and the meaning of what's happening in this text. The magnitude and the meaning. So let's look at magnitude. If you flip back in your Bibles to, to, to chapter 5, verse 1, remember where we left chapter 5, that Jesus is in Jerusalem. And in 6.1, in our text today, it says, after this. So depending upon, we don't know exactly which particular feast that Jesus was in Jerusalem at, but if it was Passover, it would have been maybe 12 months later. But we know that Jesus is steering clear of Jerusalem and the religious leaders there because they were out to kill him. And because he says, tells us repeatedly in John that my time has not yet come, he goes north with his disciples and ministers in this Sea of Galilee area. Now, verse 1 tells us that the Romans also called this the Sea of Tiberias. So Tiberias was an emperor and Herod Antipas founded a city on the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias. Then over time, that name kind of came to replace the name of the sea 
of Galilee. But what we do know from the other gospel writers is that Jesus is experiencing unprecedented success. Now look at verse 2, which is kind of the understatement of the century. And John has a, has a way of doing that. He says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now those two words, large crowds and, and sick, that's like saying... FSU needs coaching help on the defensive side of the football, okay? That's like saying Tennessee might want to think about a new head coach sometime in its near future, like today. Okay, anyway, so, so these are understatements of the year. Verse 10 tells us exactly, exactly how large this crowd was. It says there was, look at verse 10, it says there was 5,000 men. But what you need to know about that is that these are just the... the it just mentions these in terms of the heads of household. Because we know that wherever men are, there are women. And I know this is going to be a shock, but whether men and women are together, there are kids. I mean, just kind of the way it works. So, so we estimate there's probably 20,000 people that are following Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. And it says that they are sick. Understand, for because this is a time in human history where we don't understand anything about disease. We don't understand anything about antibiotics or germs. Now, if I were to, to ask you to raise your hand, and you don't need to do this unless you just want to let us know your medical history, you have no shame. But if, if I were to ask you to raise your hand that if you are under some sort of medical treatment right now, some sort of prescription, medical prescription, or, or you've had knees replaced, or shoulders replaced, or hips replaced, or you might have cancer or strep throat or a heart condition. You get the idea. Imagine what we would look like as a collective whole with no medical care. Okay? We would be a pretty desperate lot. And if you can begin to think about this, you understand a little bit about what this crowd was like. It's 20,000 people in desperate need. And they have heard that there is a, a prophet out in the wilderness proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And not only that, but he is healing people. Well, you get the idea. We would, we would all be there in a second, wouldn't we? And that's what's happening with these crowds. So as they were pursuing Jesus relentlessly over days and weeks and months, listen to how Mark, the gospel writer, kind of fills in the details a little bit for us. It'll help us understand better what's happening here. Mark 6. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So what, what, what's happening here? There's so many people, the needs are so overwhelming, the disciples do not have time to eat. I can't identify with that. I always have time to eat, okay? But they did not even have time to eat. They were so overwhelmed with the day in and day out of ministry. Jesus said, let's get in a boat. Let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we need some time to debrief. We need some time to retreat. We need some R&R. If you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, um, the way that the disciples went about this is in order to get away from everyone is they got in a boat. 
and they begin rowing. And I don't recommend this for married couples unless you bring your marriage, uh, marriage counselor with you. Um, Susan and I can identify with this. Don't ever try to row anywhere as a married couple. Anyway, it takes... But they're rowing, laboring across the Sea of Galilee, and then the rest of the crowd sort of goes around the long way on land but beats them there by foot. And so as soon as they get there, the crowd is waiting on them. So Jesus goes up on the mountain to teach. And remember, the, the, the sort of setting here, we've got to put ourselves in this, in this context. This is an isolated region. They're on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us it is a desolate place. It's getting late in the afternoon, no doubt. And, and these people don't care. You ever been in such a desperate situation that you didn't care what happened to you exactly? You have got to be where you've got to be or go where you've got to go or do what you've got to do. And that is what's happening to these people. It's dark, it's late, and there's no food. And it might be stretching it to be a bit to say that they're bordering on a humanitarian crisis, but you get it. You get 20,000 hungry people out in the middle of the wilderness desperate for healing and so Jesus, as he, as he does in these things, he turns to Philip, and, and probably, you know, poor Philip. Why Philip? Philip is from this region. And Philip is from this region. And Jesus turns to him and asks him a question. I'll look at verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So that's the question Jesus asked him. Now, as a parent, you should know this. You should never ask your children questions that you don't already have the answer for, right? You're like, if you're a good lawyer-like parent. So I remember I was 19, 20 years old, University of Tennessee from Chattanooga, went down to my parents rededicated their marriage vows. And so I invited a bunch of my friends from Campus Crusade, 20 or 30 of us. This was all Christ-centered fun, don't worry. Anyway, we we all came down. And my parents recited their vows, and, and we proceeded to pack the rest of us, 25 or 30 of us, into my parents' 1,400-square-foot house. Now, when my parents came home and asked us, how did it go? You see, they had already surveyed the neighbors, okay? They, they knew how it went, okay? They knew how it went. They, they knew the craziness that had gone down. They already had all the facts. See, there were sort of, what were they doing? testing me, right? This is what Jesus is doing. He knows, he knows what, what he's going to do. But Philip, and guys, this is a theme throughout the Gospel of John. Philip, I mean, think about it. He's been with Jesus. He's seen Jesus do everything. Water into wine and healings and the man born blind and, you know, the, the man who was an invalid for 38 years. And, and Philip, knowing all that, looks up and says, we don't have anything, Jesus. There's, there's nowhere to go. We've got 200 denarii. That's, that's like eight months' wages. That's just enough to buy everybody a tiny, itty-bitty mouthful. That's, that's all we've got. You see, this is a recurring theme in John. Seeing but not seeing. Remember back when Jesus said, I will tear this temple down, and in three days I will build it back. And what did they say? You're crazy. It took 47 years to build this temple. The, when Nicodemus came to him at night, he said, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And what, could, what did Nicodemus say? I can't fit back into my mother's womb. 
the woman at the well, can I buy you a drink? Can I give you a drink? And what does she say? I don't have a bucket. The invalid at the pool, do you want to be well? What does he say? There's no one to drag me to the pool. See, there's this idea over and over and over again in the Gospel of John that our unbelief runs deep. That we are people who are prone to see just what is in front of us. What we can see and taste and touch and put our hands on. When in reality, there's a whole spiritual thing that God is doing, wants to, wants to do in and through us, in and through our lives. And unless God's spirit, and, and pray, folks, pray. Or else we walk out of this room just like Philip saying, we don't have enough. Because let me just say this, you may have come in here this morning, and all of us have, feeling like you are lacking bread in something. Where do you feel the lack of bread in your life this morning? Is it maritally? That God, you, you know God's called you to be together and you're committed, but honestly, you just can't see the long road. You're just like, man, this is rough. Maybe you're, you're in a job that you hate. Maybe your financial situation is, looks irreparable. Maybe there's things going on in your body that just that render you not only deathly ill, but just ineffective and burdened. Maybe you have relational deficit of bread. I don't know what that is for you. But I do know that God wants us this morning to see the work of grace that he wants to do through that deficit. Look back at the text. Because Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fishes. Now, we don't know who this boy is. Maybe he's a son of one of the disciples. Maybe he's a boy from the surrounding village. But all we know, he is the only one who remembered to pack his lunch. Okay, parents, can you identify with this? How many times have you gotten that call? So-and-so forgot their lunch today. Well, little dude did not forget his lunch. We look at it, it's, just, it's, it's humorous. Of course, it's not going to feed 20,000. But then it tells us that, in fact... Jesus, now this is, this is pretty amazing. Look at verse 11. Now, I'm going with the parents this morning. Parents, you know that when you, when you say grace or blessing at the table, you need to do that with one eye open, just always, okay? You, you never know what's going down in the prayer. Well, don't miss what happens here. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, means he gave a, he gave a Judaic blessing, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. So we say grace, we wake up, and there's a feast. And there's so much food that they end the meal with more food than they started with. So much left over that they gather them up in 12 baskets. And we don't know if that's like symbolic, this idea that God's Messiah is for the 12 tribes of Israel. Personally, I just think it's because the disciples hadn't had time to eat, right? So they each get their little basket or, or what have you. The point is, and John's just creating this picture for us, this is so beyond, so beyond anything that we can comprehend or imagine. And, and, we, and we blow by this because we've heard it so many times. But let's think for a second about what John is trying to do here. 
Look back at John chapter 1. We're, just gonna, we're not going to flash it on the screen, but you, you, can, you can read it. John 1, 3. In the, in the prologue, why John is writing. Talking about Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So in other words, not only did Jesus make everything, but no one made Jesus because he's God. When, when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, and it says the Spirit was hovering over the water, Jesus Christ wasn't just there at the creation. He was the instrument of creation. He was making. He was creating. He is Lord. That's why it tells us last week, remember, that at his voice, just at this voice, that people will rise from the grave. Every single person that's ever lived in the history of planet Earth. And so I, I, you know, I've entitled this, this sermon, Making Bread Ex Nihilo. What does that mean? Got to go to the seminary for something, right? Ex Nihilo, Latin, means out of nothing. In other words, when the girls of the Gilbert household go, go to make brownies, they take the existing ingredients that they have to make something really awesome, and they create. That's not the way God creates. God's not like a carpenter who fashions the wood or fashions the stone. No, no, no. Jesus makes the wood. Jesus makes the stone. Out of nothing, he brings something that isn't and brings it into existence. You see what John's trying to communicate here? That's the magnitude of this miracle. When we need need to understand something, wherever we're feeling the shortage of bread this morning, and all of us are in some way, wherever we are lacking, we have to be reminded God's power, his arm, is not too short to save. John shows us that over and over again. Now, it... God's grace may come in forms we don't understand or that we don't expect, but there are no limits on his power and his grace working on behalf of his people. But what John wants to open our eyes to is exactly the kind of bread that Jesus wants to give us. You see, physical bread is temporary, it's temporary. In and out. Jesus says, I've got another kind of bread for you. And I'm the bread. I am the bread of life. That, that's what John is setting the whole scene up for us in this text. And we're going to touch on that under this last point. The meaning of the miracle. That was the magnitude. Here's the meaning. Go back to the text a second in John 6. Let's remind ourselves that John, the gospel writer, is writing to Jewish Christians or Jews at large sometime around 90 A.D. So it is 60 years after this event that John is writing. He is writing to Jews who would have known their Old Testament. None of this would have been lost on them in understanding that this, this whole story sounds kind of familiar. This whole thing about being in the wilderness, like there's not enough food and people are complaining and where's our bread going to come from and God miraculously does this. Does this sound familiar? Numbers eleven thirteen. 13. Moses, 
In this passage, it's Moses who asks the question. He asks, where am I to give me to all these people? See, they were running around complaining. See, same question. For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. You see the parallel? Where do I get food for this people, Lord? And what does God do? He delivers it miraculously, supernaturally, manna from heaven. Interestingly, so much so they have to gather up all the leftovers and store it away properly because there is so much. See, it's not a coincidence that John mentions to us that the Passover feast is at hand in this text. And if there was ever a time when Israel was looking for its Moses, it was during the Passover. Because think about what Moses did. Did did a good good 40 years of ministry work, did he not? (laughs) Took the people out of Israel, parted the Red Sea, called down all the plagues upon the Egyptians, struck the the rock to make water come out, did some funky thing with the snakes. there's There's a whole bunch of stuff that he did. But the thing he, as far as the Israelites were concerned, the most important thing is that he delivered them from the hand of the blasted Egyptians and took them to the promised land. And so this was not lost on John's readers. It was not lost on those that Jesus did this miracle for. And remember, Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses promised, there's going to be a prophet that comes after me that's greater than me. So look back, look down at verse 14. The people get it, seemingly. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Let's, verse 15 says, go and make him king. Now that's understandable. I think all of us can totally identify with that. We're looking for bread. He gives us bread. Now we're looking for deliverance. In other words, Moses did one miracle, but man, keep, keep them coming. Keep them coming. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks that even after performing these signs, people were asking for more signs because that's what Moses did. He was kind of on call. He was the magician on hand to, to dispense goodies to the people of God and to, and to deliver them from whatever mess they were in. So they identified Jesus with Moses. Jesus, you're the deliverer. We've got 5,000 men here, and by the way, plenty enough to, to start a guerrilla force, fight, on the, fight underground, enough for an insurrection, all that stuff. And yet it tells us, look at verse 15, Jesus walks away. And here I think John is setting the stage for us to understand what we are to get out of this section of John You see, the issue was that because the people misunderstood the ministry of Moses, they misunderstood the ministry of Jesus. How many times, how many times, by the way, did the Israelites want to kill Moses? How many times did they want to put him away? How many times was there some insurrection in which God just said, too bad for you and 23,000 perished that day? because you've rebelled against the Lord's anointed. They misunderstood the ministry of Moses. And you may say, how so? 
Exodus 9.1, listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go. Now let's just stop. We love that. God, give me my bread. God, fix my marriage, fix my financial situation, heal my body. Um, do what only, we know you can do it, God. Do what you can do. Come on, Jesus. Show us the good stuff. Lead us, lead us to our promised land. Deliver us from the Romans. Exodus 9.1, let my people go. Interesting, that they may serve me. See that word serve? That's a priestly term. That's the term that was used by the Old Testament writers when they talked about the priests in the temple of God performing priestly services, sacrifices, preparing the worship of the Lord. In other words, what Moses is saying here is that God or Israel, the reason God has let you go is not merely you can go to the promised land or merely that you're delivered from your oppressors, or merely that God fixes all the things in your life, he's delivered you from the promised land so that you can be his treasured people, that you can come and worship him, that you can come and set your heart apart for him. You see, the goal in the Exodus was not the deliverance. The deliverance was the means so that the people would worship God and him alone. If it was just about the deliverance, if it was just about the exodus, God would have brought them out and said, go for it. This Ten Commandments stuff and Sinai and be separate and be holy and the tabernacle and all that stuff, what good is any of that? What's the big deal about worshiping the golden calf? But God said, I'm, I'm not here to entertain and provide you with the externals. I love you too much for that. Brooks, he loves us too much for that. And so he says, I've saved you because I want your heart. I've given you food. I've given you bread so that you will seek me, the bread of life. See, they loved their bread. Bread in the belly, so they ate till they get their fill. They loved their diseases healed. They loved their problems fixed. But they detested the words of the Lord. And we're going we're to get to that point by the end of the chapter. They did not want any part of them. See, Jesus came to give us bread himself because it's the one thing that you and I need the most. See, we need a clean heart and forgiveness of sins and a restored relationship. And the only way that's going to happen is not by Jesus coming and making himself king. The only way that's going to happen is Jesus coming to die. To say, no, no, no. I'm not make, you're not going to make me a king. I came to seek and save that which is lost. And the only way to do that is to go to the cross. Guys, after this service, um, some of the elders and I are going to Go up to see Robert Wills in um, his hospital room. Robert is a, is a precious brother in Christ, and he and his wife Jane, um, parents of, of Tori Braun. But Robert is uh, about to go home to be with the Lord. And he's sorrowful, but he's always rejoicing. 
He's outwardly wasting away, but inwardly he's being renewed day by day. And see, we may say, well, why isn't God giving him his bread? Why isn't he fixing, why isn't he fixing his, his body, Pastor Paul? We have to say, no, no, no. God is giving Robert the thing that he needs the most. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Think about this when you think about your lack of bread. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Robert Wills' inner self is being renewed right now. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Think about this. Whatever your lack of bread is, no matter how serious, you know what God calls that? Or Paul calls that? God through Paul? A light and momentary affliction. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's how much God loves his people. That's why Jesus would not allow them to make him king. That's why he had a one-way mission to go to Jerusalem, to die on a cross, so that for us, here, for you, today, for me, he can be our bread, the bread of life. John 6, 35, and we're done. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst.